Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Altmed podcast. I'm here as always with my co-host Mitch Kurtz. How are Hello. you? Hello. Very well, thank you. <laughs> Good to see you. You're looking a bit sharper than uh, than the last time I saw you. Actually, wearing a better shirt, perhaps, or you pulled the iron out. I'm not sure. One of the two. But um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we are thrilled to have. Um, one of the best scientific minds in the medical cannabis space in Australia on our episode today. It is Justin Sinclair, the Chief Scientific Officer at ANTG. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, uh, Andrew and Mitch. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for taking the time. Our pleasure. Um, Now, we always kick off by asking our guests, because it's a bit of a, a funny old space, this medical cannabis thing uh how did you sort of get into it i i know you've got a bit of a rich history in plant medicine but if you can sort of take us through the journey of, of how you fell into to this spot yeah that definitely takes me back so um i guess when i was very young um in you know four or five years old i actually had the opportunity to go up and spend time in jabiru up in the northern territory um and uh spent some time there and i under i started just started to watch how the our indigenous, you know, were so at home with nature and, and uh, they knew what the plants were, they knew what could be eaten and those types of things. And it just stuck as a young kid. I was just so fascinated with it. And then um, my dad, who worked for CSIRO, um, we traveled around a lot. Um, so I was, uh, you know, I went to a lot of different schools and uh, I always just found uh, plants to be really good company. I uh, spent a lot of time in nature while I was growing up, um, spending time from being in the bush to being in the city. And uh, plants have just always held that special place for me. And when I was in my teens, I had the opportunity, went over to the United States, uh, stayed with family over there uh, in Northern California in uh, a little place called Chico, college town, as they call it over there, and um, got to learn a lot um, just from local indigenous, the Native Americans. I traveled up to Oregon for two years as well and spent time up near Bend. Um, Again, learning from some of the uh, Native American Indians up there and how they use plants. And um, I was really privileged because I got to spend direct time with them and and learn from them, um, you know, almost in an ethnobotanical or or ethnopharmacological way um, and get to learn how they used it in their culture and all the different plants that they used. And it just, it just, you know, melted my brain that so many medicines could be waiting in nature, unfound, untapped, unstudied. And, and so that kind of um, set me the goal then, of course, being up in NorCal, um, I did get some exposure to cannabis at that time, uh, back in the early 90s, um, on the outskirts of the Emerald Triangle. So again, Mendocino, Trinity and Humboldt counties. Mm. Uh, so yeah, that was kind of my first exposure to cannabis. And I got to meet some people that were using it for um, medicinal purposes. And so it came on my radar then. Um, and then I returned back to Australia after four years abroad um, and started my studies. So I, I decided to go ahead and I studied a, a Bachelor of Health Science um, in naturopathy, learning all about the different uh, herbs, hundreds of different herbs um, and uh, how they use for all sorts of different conditions. And then from there, I went and studied my master's um, at Sydney University Faculty of Pharmacy. Um, So that was a master's of herbal medicine. Again, all of the kind of analytical chemistry, pharmacognosy, um, which is just a fancy name for studying the drugs that come from plants and fungi and other natural sources, um, and learned from great lecturers um, at uh, at UCID. And then from there, um, I've now started a journey down the the road of a 
PhD. So um, my doctoral studies are looking at medicinal cannabis for uh, the safety or assessing the safety, tolerability and effectiveness of medicinal cannabis for endometriosis. So that's where I currently am. I'm two years in on that path and uh, my research certainly takes me down from there. But I'm, I'm obviously interested in all sorts of medicinal plants, but cannabis obviously has been a focus, particularly um, since I had the opportunity to uh, work with Lucy Haslam at United in Compassion. Um, so putting out a lot of education and things like that, because I that was my main interest. And it was always the, I guess it was always my understanding that if we want to change anything, it's usually through education. So that was the, the very, very small part that I've played um, in the space, I guess. Yeah, incredible. And so uh, just for the people out there that um, might not know exactly what uh, ethnobotany actually means, I'd love to get a, a quick description. Um, not implying I don't know, although I might not um, exactly as well as you describe it. It's an interesting one. So I guess when we, st it's a scientific study, of course, um, there were some, some great uh, ethnobotanists, the father of ethnobotany. So you're looking at um, Richard, uh, Richard Evan Schultes and um, some of your listeners might know Dennis McKenna. Um, so he'd be an ethnobotanist or ethnopharmacologist. And essentially it's just the, the scientific investigation, I guess, of um, traditional indigenous knowledge um, and the customary use of different peoples in different locations around the world concerning plants and their use, whether that is for medicine, uh, religious, uh, entheogenic uh, uses, food, all of those types of things. So it's really just focusing on the interrelationship between the plant and the people that use it and how they use it. Whereas ethnopharmacology um, is really just looking at the study of the, the pharmacology that comes from plants and how different cultures use those plants or fungi or other natural substances as medicines. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, I think that's... Um a question we get you know we ponder and i get asked actually ourselves a lot um talking about the origins of cannabis we know we've been using it for thousands of years do you, can is there much in the way of uh australian cannabis being used for and we, we know it's native to, to to places like thailand or china potentially originally but um in terms of the australian scene with with cannabis do you know much about the history of, of cannabis here natively at all if if at all look at there are many better academics probably to ask them, uh, <laughs> ask them that. But I, I, from my understanding, um, cannabis came out on the first fleet. Um, so it might have been used as a textile crop. I know that Dr. David Caldicott um, has done some rummaging through some of the National Archives, I think, on that. So um, he'd be the one to ask on it. But I mean, going back to where it originates from, uh, Central Asia. Um, so yeah. largely looking at that uh, Central Asian region, the, the Afghanistan, um, yeah. And obviously, it's it's been traded from there um, everywhere. So it's obviously in China, all the way up uh, to Russia, pretty much any continent on the planet that can sustain plant life. So probably the only exceptions being the permafrost of the Ar Arctic and, and Antarctic and probably some of the Siberian regions. But yeah. every other place, you'll find cannabis because it was so heavily traded by our ancestors. So, But that was its point of origin, I believe. So... Um, uh, Clark and Merlin, uh, who again, two pretty significant ethnobotanists in this space, have posed uh, in their book, uh, uh, Cannabis Evolution and Ethnobotany. I think it is uh, that, yeah, it was uh, likely in that Central Asian region where it, where it started from and then it spread from there. 
But from right. Australia's point of view, yeah, I, I, I believe that it came from the first fleet, but certainly don't hold me to that. What, what, a, what, a, what yeah. a trip that would have been for Captain, <laughs> Captain Cooked. <laughs> Rolling up with the Afghan haze. Um, yeah. No, yeah, it, well, it, well, I think it was mostly hemp back then because we have to remember back in those days that hemp was used for all the rigging of the naval ships and sure. hemp was used for the textiles of, of the you know some of the the sheets of the sails. So it was it was a pretty important thing to actually have a really good supply of hemp for, I guess the the British Navy, which was the biggest biggest navy at the time. So I think that's probably what they had in mind, um, and whether or not they were using it for um, other purposes, I'm not sure. Yeah, goodness me, something that just um, and there's so much to unpack from your story, um, which I want to go to as well, but just something that popped in my mind while you were talking about how you've really grown, you know, a love of, of cannabis and, and, you know, learning about um, phytocannabinoids and, and plant medicine generally. Just throwing a left field one at you, I read about mycocannabinoids recently. So cannabinoids, apparently they've found endocannabinoid metabolic enzymes in truffles and they have basically determined that even fungi contain cannabinoids, which they've called mycocannabinoids. Just wanted to know, put you on the spot and see if you know anything about this. Yeah, no, I don't. I, I read a paper about that probably only about a week ago. And it's, yeah. it, it's, it's very interesting because I think why I'm so interested in that is because fungi kind of live, they're obviously their own kingdom. They have certain characteristics of of plants, but they are quite unique, and and uh, there's a lot more of them um, mm. than plants. And so, again, just exploring that and looking at you know the the potential impact, that's the thing that blows my mind. I mean, there's over 200,000 species of flowering plants on the planet, uh, many more depending on the literature that you read, and we've probably only studied about 10 to 15 percent of those for medicinal virtue. And that's just wow. the flowering plants. We're not talking about any of the seed bearing trees or, or anything, you know, the lower bryoph uh, the bryophytes and things like that. And then you've got the fungi on top of that. And there's many, many more of them. So I, I just, one thing I'd just love to see is, is more research is getting out there and doing research on, on plants and finding out what, what's in them, high throughput screening, and just mm. being able to, to actually quantify and qualify the actual pharmacopoeia that we live in yes and to you know, sort of to, 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 to almost put it into a comprehensive you know <laughs> might be eight hundred thousand volumes i don't care it just if we could just document it <laughs> well that that would be such a it would be such an amazing scientific route of discovery i think because you know as i said there could be cures for all sorts of things there could be some type of lichen growing on a tree in Mozambique that we just haven't mm. found yet. And, well, and that be amazing. I'm pretty sure antibiotics, aren't they? The process of manufacturing those comes from fungi or something. Yeah. So anyway, it does. Yes. The mind boggles. There is a lot, but I, I wanted to just return to, to the story. So you are talking about your time in, um, in Chico. I'm, I'm just interested. This would have been prior to legalization over in America. Yeah. In California, so that's a good question. Um, the I was over there from '93 um, for until '97, so there was a lot of that medicinal cannabis movement happening. But the major, the great majority of people that I had a chance to spend time with were largely using what we would call, you know, green market or or illicit cannabis. 
yeah. um, for medical purposes. Yeah. And and that was the the main uh, kind of patients that I got to see during my time over there. And it was used for everything from chronic pain to um, you know everything that we're using it for uh, prescribed here in Australia today. And it was just um, yeah a lot uh, a lot less regulated uh, mm. back in those days, but. All it really did for me was just put cannabis front and center on my radar because it had always been there. There's always a love of it um, from its, uh, you know, I, I, I would argue of the hundreds of plants that I've had a chance to study over the years, cannabis is by far and away uh, the one that has, I think, the most therapeutic potential of, of all of the plants I've had a chance to study. And, and you know, that will that, that's a hill that I'll gladly die on um, yeah. to, to, to say that just... You know, I think it is definitely one of the most studied plants on the on the planet, and and we're still just scratching. You know, it's the tip of the iceberg. So, mm. but yeah, it's um, most of that focus at that time for me was uh, learning patient stories, and that came largely from from the illicit supply at that time. Yeah, which because there there was, I mean, even though it's legal, you know, is it that states have legalized. I think there's sometimes a myth to thinking that this industry just sort of popped up, but. Yeah, going back a long time before that, that Northern Californian was, you know, there was gorilla grows there long before the, the sort of the recent wave of legalization. So it's kind of still are, I think. Yeah, yeah. Plenty of gorilla grows still there. Um, yeah, no, it's fascinating. Mm. No, absolutely. And you spend, yeah, you're saying a lot of time in probably what most people consider the mecca of cannabis potentially um, in terms of growing at least. Um the Emerald Triangle, maybe can you t shed any light for the, uh, the Australian listeners, um, what it's like to kind of spend a bit of time in that region? So, yeah, look, it was, it was an interesting time and, and I'm being a lover of nature. I'd spend a lot of time backpacking and things like that, going and checking out redwood groves and all those things. And that's kind of an area where a lot of the redwoods were. So, you know, I'd, I'd get to be able to travel through that Mendocino County and, and, and Trinity and Humboldt counties and, the reason really is is that it's it's very remote in some of those regions it's very isolated um there's good climactic conditions um for uh growing cannabis up there and uh particularly it's 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 largely the remoteness that um a lot of people would have liked um because you know there's lots of forests lots of trees very very hard i guess to uh to be spotted out there in some of those places but um the quality of the knowledge of people that were growing for some of these patients I had a chance to talk to. It was incredible. I mean, the genetics that comes, you know, from the Emerald Triangle, from those three areas, is largely formed the basis for so many of the, the cannabis strains and, and varieties, chemovars, whatever you wish to refer them as, that we use today. Um, were, were circulating through those, through those areas back in the, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, and then obviously as legalization came on and more states come um, adopted that, that type of mentality, those genetics have just spread everywhere uh, around the world. So I think that, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is um, rightfully so a mecca um, for a lot of that, not only the genetics and the knowledge, but certainly a lot of the, um, and that's going back, you know, much more than the time than I was there, um, that there would be people that have been growing there uh, and supplying uh, cannabis for patients for therapeutic purposes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just curious um, a little bit. I know we got put in touch by the lovely Tegan, actually, who's um, you've spoken a lot um, with her and on her Instagram and through her, her, her um, kind of Instagram TV. 
about a little bit about what you're doing with your research um, thesis, I guess, um, and on endometriosis and kind of want to move into that realm because it's a very interesting, very topical um, uh, component of what cannabis treats, uh, treats. And we have a lot of people that actually listen in to, to find out about endometriosis. It seems to be um, much more prevalent and less discussed. And I, and, I, and I really appreciate the work that she's doing over there, Tegan. Um, but absolutely that, that comes from, you know, a lot of the types of research that you're doing now. So, um, please take us through a little bit about what it is you're doing to push that, that, uh, frontier forward. Yeah, certainly Mitch. Um, did you want me to start perhaps like defining endometriosis and what it is? Would love that. Yeah, cool. There okay. might so, be a few uh, male listeners that don't completely understand. Yeah, certainly. So endometriosis is a, it's an estrogen dependent uh, chronic inflammatory condition. So it affects the entire body. Obviously, that's uh, um, the female reproductive tissues and organs um, and pelvic um, region specifically, but it can actually um, affect other areas of the body. And it's where, where there's a, a presence of cells that are very similar to the lining of the endometrium. Um, and we find that they can be found or grow outside the uterine cavity. So these are what we would call ectopic implants. Um, so they're commonly found in the pelvis, but they can be found in other, in, in other areas such as the, uh, the diaphragm, uh, particularly attached to the bowel and those types of things, uh, the abdomen. And I think, I think it's even been found in the lungs and, and in the central nervous system. So it is, um, endometriosis is one of the most common uh, causes of, of chronic pelvic pain and chronic pelvic pain. Um, you know, it's, it's something that is in, in many instances quite hard to treat. And at this point, when it comes to endometriosis, one of the only ways to really diagnose it or the gold standard of diagnosis is via um, an invasive laparoscopy. So you actually have to undergo surgery for it. Um, and that can be, well, problematic in many ways because uh, you might not be able, to, or many of these people that have endo may not have uh, the opportunity to uh, find a surgeon that's skilled with that, uh, may live in rural or remote locations, or may actually live in countries that don't have very good healthcare. So again, many of um, pe the people with endometriosis in Australia uh, are quite lucky because we have quite a good healthcare system. But think about, uh, think about those people in Tanzania um, or you know, Mozambique that uh, maybe don't. So, but the, the condition itself is characterized by um, certain um, symptoms, I guess. And that's kind of um, quite severe dysmenorrhea or period pain. Um, they can get painful sex, which is known as dyspareunia, uh, dyschesia, uh, which is um, pain on defecation and dysuria, which is pain on urination. So there's all sorts of other more systemic um, problems, of course, like uh, fatigue, uh, nausea and vomiting, a uh, lot of GIT disturbance or what people with endo actually call um, endo belly, where, they, where they, um, their abdomen can really flare up, obviously causing a lot of pain. And the really interesting thing too is that this pain, this pelvic pain um, can actually exist in the absence of any, any endometrial lesions. Um, and I think one of the things that really um, is, is something not discussed a lot about is that endometriosis can uh, lead to infertility. Um, so, you know, some of the figures that have been thrown around are anywhere between 30 and 50%. But it's not just those symptoms, because there's all sorts of other comorbid symptoms as well. So, of course, with many chronic illnesses, um, you've got your anxiety and your depression, uh, back pain, migraines, fibromyalgia, 
um, uterine fibroid, fibroids, I think also your chronic fatigue syndrome and uh, irritable bowel syndrome and autoimmune diseases. So all of these can be comorbid or, or occur with uh, those previous symptoms that I talked to you about. And, you know, it's that's one of the things that I'm really interested in unpicking and unpacking a bit more because all of those things as the physical impact of endometriosis to the health uh, and well-being of, of the person that has it. But that then goes on to impact things like social activities. You know, can they go to parties and things like that when they're in pain? Likely not. And that, that can then affect maybe some of their, their circles of friends, uh, your quality of life in general. It could impact your ability to study academically, go to school, go to exercise. University. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, your career progression, because you might need to take more time off and, and because of the pain. And it can also, of course, impact their partners with their sexual and romantic relationships. So it's it's one of those conditions that just has broad ranging, really impactful ramifications for the people that have it. And that's, you know, it's what drove me into it is that one of my family, uh, a family loved one um, suffers from it. Um, and that's what drove me down down this line. And, you know, even even going away from the person just to put some things into context for you when it comes to the financial impact that this condition or this disease has in Australia, I think it's $9.7 billion. Um, it affects our economy per year. So it's around 30,000 per person per year that has endometriosis. Um, I think between the years 2016, 2017, there were like 34,000 hospitalizations um, that were wow. due to endometriosis. And, and that to me is just, you know, that's crazy. I mean, 15 of every thousand hospitalizations were um, among that group around 15 to 44 with endometriosis. So there's that economic aspect as well. And it's really good to see that the, you know, the government has been throwing some money and uh, funding down for research for endometriosis, because essentially it's one in nine to one in 10 Australians has this condition. Why? Um, yeah. We just have not heard enough about it. Have we? It is almost, it's like this silent condition that so many women would be just living in agony with. Uh, I remember um, when we had Tegan on, she described as well the extent of how invasive the um, diagnostic process can be, um, you know, and that that's perhaps another factor is, you know, people trying to just learn to live with it without, um, you know, going the, the full let's, you know, get in there, see what's happening and, and, you know, try and surgically fix things. And it's, yeah, it's, it's quite a, um, quite a lot of work involved on that front. Oh, absolutely. And, and surgery is rarely curative, mm. um, you know, and, and I guess just getting back to that kind of prevalence. Yeah. It's that depending on what you read, it's around four to 10% um, worldwide that are affected by that, you know, of um, and about 800,000 Australians. Um, and I think the last figure I heard was about a over 176 million worldwide are impacted by this. And, and in many instances, it's undiagnosed because either they don't have the uh, health care. I mean, as I said, imagine people in third world countries um, just being able to get access to medical care is one thing and then trying to get access to a specialist um, gynecologist that has expertise in excising um, endometriotic lesions is a whole other kettle of fish. So I think in many ways, uh, a lot of, a lot of people might be out there that, that actually just think that they've got a bad period or having bad period pain when it could actually be 
uh, endometriosis and, and maybe their GP hasn't picked it up or maybe their, their specialist hasn't picked it up. But that's, that's, that's one of the, the things that that number is, is as you say, it's been uh, as a condition kind of swept under the carpet for quite some time, but it's fantastic to see a lot of the advocacy work by people like Tegan, Endometriosis Australia and others that are, that are really raising this to the spotlight and, and getting it the attention that it deserves. Yeah, absolutely. And it might also be good now to, <laughs> obviously this is your area, so it's great to hear it from you, but um, we, we do know that there's CB receptors in the endometrium and, and the um, ovaries and, and maybe taking us through how that actually affects, you know, how cannabis affects people that are, that are. Yeah. What is the, what is the mechanism of action for one of a better term in cannabis medicine and treating endometriosis? It's a good question and we're still unpicking it. And I, I think one of the really interesting factors about it is maybe I'll go back and talk about the endocannabinoid system first, because that yeah, might yeah. lay a bit of groundwork. So the endocannabinoid system, when it's involved with um, that female reproductive system, it crosstalks or, or is in communication with the hypothalamic uh, pituitary ovarian axis. So this basically means that the uh, one of the things too I found through research was that the uterus actually contains very high amounts of anandamide. Um, there's dense cannabinoid receptors that are expressed right throughout the ovaries and the endometrium. And that when we when I've started looking at the literature, um, and you know the literature is obviously emerging in this, but Essentially, the endocannabinoid system can reach out and impact things like your embryo transport, uh, implantation, uterine decidualization and placentation, so very important for um, pregnancy, your follicular genesis, um, oocyte maturation and, and the modulation of pain. And so just those, that's just what we know of at the moment. Obviously, that's going to probably grow. Um, and and to, to get back to your or, or to get back to answer your question specifically, how does cannabis work? It's it's essentially all these different cannabinoids, of course, working on different receptors. So it's not just necessarily cannabinoid receptors. It might be that they're interacting, you know, with um, trip V1 receptors. It might be that they're you know working on on any number of others, PPARs or your um, peroxisome. Um, activator receptors that are in that are actually within the cell so it's it's one of those things that i guess what a pharmacist or in many instances some doctors would call a dirty drug because it can actually target so many different receptors at once and i would i would go so far as to argue that that's likely why cannabis works so well um, is because it is able to target inflammation. It's able to directly modulate pain. It's, it's able to target uh, anxiety through CBD as an example, because that's antidepressant and anxiolytic through your 5-HT1, uh, 5-HT1A or your serotonin receptors. Um, those are, you know, and then you've got interaction through the gut. You know, the GIT is absolutely riddled, of course, as well with the endocannabinoid system and cannabinoid receptors. So I would argue that that's the strength of cannabis. Um, some would argue that that's a weakness because, oh, we want one single mechanism. We need to know one single me mechanism and that's how we like our drugs to work. And, you know, I, I, I don't subscribe to that. You know, plants are very complex. They have, you know, cannabis by itself. It's, you know, we only talk about cannabinoids and, and terpenes, but what about the unique canflavins? What about the flavonoids contained within it? There's all sorts, you know, over 500 different other chemicals um, that are contained within the system 
uh, of the oh, sorry contained within the plant and and what do they do or how do they affect um, the system so there's a lot more to unpack but I, I certainly you know whether you um, that that phytochemical synergy um, that these different constituents have because they do by working on different receptors um, and as I said I see that as a strength but I know that you know many in science um, certainly not from necessarily from where the science that I come from but um, they, they love to have and understand, you know, drugs and use single mechanisms. Um, but I just think that that's actually the strength of cannabis and why so many people are using it, not just for endometriosis, but so many other things, because it can tackle pain all the way through to a lot of the comorbid symptoms that come with chronic illness. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say, like beyond the um, kind of uh, the single interactions and stuff, you're, you're seeing it target several different conditions that somebody might be suffering so somebody with endometriosis that does have maybe nausea or does have some anxiety or sleep issues or depressed depressive mood swings things like that it really um replaces what you would otherwise need polypharmacy to actually treat and you know there's countless tales of people using you know multiple different drugs and having side effects from this one and that one does that and that one makes me feel depressed and that one makes me not able to go to the toilet and you know it's 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 quite amazing I, I i've never understood why somebody would want to limit somebody's um relief or, or therapy in that sense but i i, I do understand wanting to un, wanting to understand why a, why a specific chemical does what but I, but I, not at the expense of patient outcomes i think uh, yeah very, very well said and I, I i do agree of course i think the um the reality is, is that we want to know that knowledge. We need to know that knowledge. We will eventually know that knowledge, but I'm not entirely convinced that as long as something is safe um, and effective and people are finding effect with that, that that should be denied as an, as an access. Cause it's, yeah, it's, it, it, it is very broad ranging, as you say, everything from, um, you know, the comorbid symptoms as well as pain, which so many people use it for. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, very well said. So, and in terms of, um, I guess, the research question that you're tackling through your PhD program, what, what exactly is that? Yeah, no, look, thank you. That's a, never ask a PhD student about their research. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was just, I was concerned that our podcast was only going to run for another 15 minutes and I really wanted to open up the floodgates for another six hours. Um, <laughs> no problem. But look, um, so essentially the, my question or what I'm investigating is, is the safety, the tolerability and the effectiveness of medicinal cannabis for endometriosis, pain and associated symptoms. Mm. So I've, I've been doing that now for two years. I'm a, a PhD candidate at Nickham Health Research Institute at uh, Western Sydney University. So that's where I was um, employed previous um, as a research fellow uh, before I started my time um, with uh, the team at ANTG. And, and so in those two years, we've been able to conduct quite a bit of preliminary research to actually start forming the, the literature and, and forming the thesis um, so that we can um, stop in a, in a uh, or, or conclude the study with a clinical trial. So one of the first studies that we actually looked at um, was looking at uh, a larger um, survey where we actually looked at uh, different self-management strategies um, that people used when it came to uh, controlling their endometriosis. So that could be anything from qigong to diet. Um, and of course, cannabis was included in there. And what we actually found was that about 13% of the respondents used cannabis 
um, largely from the green market or illicitly to manage their endometriosis pain and symptoms. It was the highest ranked of all of the self-management um, strategies that uh, were recorded. And that what was interesting, because this is going back to what you just raised, was that 56%, I think it was, um, of uh, people said that cannabis um, could reduce or did reduce their pharmaceutical usage by more than 50%. And about 27% reported um, that it reduced uh, by 25 to 50%. So as we call that the substitution effect. And there, there were some mild adverse effects reported in that, uh, in that particular study, I think by about 10%, um, which were just very common um, adverse effects like uh, drowsiness and a little bit of anxiety uh, and tachycardia, because we do need to remember that the majority of that uh, particular cohort were using um, illicitly supplied cannabis. And one of the other things I found really interesting to go back to your point about how it can work on so many different symptoms um, was that 60% of that particular cohort um, reported significant improvement in anxiety. I think it was almost 70% um, reported significant improvement in depression. 60% uh, uh, reported improvement in their gastrointestinal disturbance and about the same percentage again for nausea and vomiting. But the standout um, performer there was about 80% 80, 80 uh, reported significant improvement in their sleep. And anyone that knows chronic uh, pain, chronic disease, um, knows that sleep is such an important aspect to it. So that was that would they were some really interesting findings from there, as well as the fact that um, so many in that cohort were still using it inhaled. They were actually smoking it. That was the most common dosage form um, for those that reported it. And I think the other thing that was quite interesting too is that the the rough estimate for what they spent on their um, cannabis was around a hundred dollars per month. And so. Yeah, that then led to another study um, that we looked at, which was actually done over across the ditch in New Zealand. Um, and one of the things we wanted to do with that study particularly is not only gather similar information, but actually dig down a little bit deeper when it came to the uh, substitution effect. And so one of the things that we found really interesting from that illicit, I think it was uh, illicit cannabis uh, usage as a management strategy in New Zealand um, for uh, uh, women with endometriosis, and that was a, a survey, online survey. But essentially, the thing that was really interesting is that 80% um, or so uh, of respondents reduced their normal pharmaceutical medication use uh, with over, again, 59% completely stopping a medication. So the thing that was quite interesting from there, I mean, opioids um, were one of the most common stopped at about 40%. And so, of course, there'd be so many people out there that would be like, wow, that's amazing and doctors as well just saying this is significant, you know, because opioids, of course, have um, dependency issues. They've got overdose risk, um, mortality risk. Um, and obviously we're in the middle of a, um, or coming out of hopefully soon, a, a, an opioid ep epidemic. And so this has so many positive, there's positive news to that. But then on the flip side, there's actually in a way concern, clinical concern. And the reason that would be is that, you know, doctors, in many instances, some of these medications that people are using for endometriosis, whether those are, are neuroleptics or antineuropathics or your opioids or your benzodiazepines or any of those, um, they should not be stopped cold turkey um, in some instances. And, and usually the recommendation would be to go to your doctor and, and do that together um, so that you can taper those doses down of those drugs in a very safe and and measured way and not just you know it's, it's quite simply you just shouldn't be stopping some of those 
uh, cold turkey. And so that's, that is a concern. So for all the positive that there is, there are those little concerns too, because particularly if some of these um, people that are using illicit cannabis um, for their endometriosis and using that to come off some of those medications, many of them are not telling their doctors about it. And so that's one of the things that we actually uh, did find out in, in another, uh, another survey that's uh, actually soon to be published. And then we had um, our most recent publication, which was um, where we went back and looked at some of the archival data from StrainPrint, uh, which is a company that tracks uh, regular or regulated legal cannabis um, for different symptoms and different conditions. And so we um, got access to the data from there. And we actually uh, picked that apart and had that recently published in, in PLOS One. And again, one of the interesting things from that is that we hypothesize that in a regulated market like Canada, um, that they would probably be using more oral oils and those types of things, and probably not so much of the inhaled. Um, and we thought that the previous work that we'd done, um, the inhaled was being used in both Australia and New Zealand so much because maybe they, you know, that getting different products and things like that from the green market or from illicit supply um, didn't have a lot of sophistication. And so that was just the way that they were able to obtain it. So we thought um, in, a, in a regulated market like Canada, that wouldn't be the case. And, and, and that was not the case. So we still found, you know, I think it was around 40% um, were using vaporized inhaled cannabis and around 25% were using smoked cannabis, in, uh, you know, through inhalation. So that kind of uh, poo-pooed that one. And so largely we've been able to understand from focus groups that we've run since that time, that the reason that a lot of them prefer that inhaled dosage is because of a fast onset of action. So from a pharmacological point of view, um, as many of your listeners probably already know, your um, inhaled cannabis does cross the blood brain barrier relatively quickly. Usually you start feeling effects, uh, if not under five minutes, usually within five to 10 minutes. Um, and that's obviously quite important for pain, particularly in endometriosis, when you can get breakthrough pain um, that can come on very suddenly. Um, and so that, that, that might be, and we believe, obviously, through talking uh, with people that have been in our focus groups, that that is entirely why they like to use it um, from that point of view. But in that particular study, it was um, overall very positive effect. Um, the baseline efficacy was a rating of around 31. Um, that inhaled, uh, the inhaled methods tended to have higher levels of, of THC, lower levels of CBD, whereas the ingested or oral methods tended to have lower THC and higher CBD. Um, THC is very important for pain relief. So for those of you that are like um, CBD is medicinal cannabis and THC is, is recreational cannabis, I, I just, yeah, no, that's just not the way it is because that's not the way that we're seeing it's being used. Yeah. Um, and, and that there was generally no difference when it came to inhaled versus ingested on their pelvic pain, but that the oral product that they were using, which as you'll remember, are higher in CBD, generally did tend to be more superior for mood. So again, your anxiety or depression and the mm. GIT disturbances that they had. So that was, that was our latest publication. Um, and then the one that should be coming out hopefully uh, pretty soon was just look at, we did a large international survey, um, which included, you know, UK, United States, all of those um, larger company, uh, uh, countries, some with um, legalized and, and regulated and, and somewhere it's just emerging. And one of the things that um, we've just started picking through um, was again that uh, uh, substitution effect data. And again, going back, if, if we just, we did a subset analysis, just looking at Australia and New Zealand as a subset. 
And we found that when you combine those two countries and the participants together, that again, 31% were able to completely stop an opioid, 51% were able to completely stop uh, a neuroleptic drug, 21%, uh, give or take, were around uh, able to completely stop an antidepressant like an SSRI. 27% um, were able to stop your anti-anxiety or anxiolytic medications, such as maybe benzodiazepines, and that sleeping medications were able to be completely stopped by 35%. I mean, that list could go on. I could continue talking about it, but I don't. I certainly don't want to bore you or your listeners. But what what we can absolutely guarantee is that substitution effect data appears to be live and well in all of the surveys that we've conducted so far. Uh, we have, of course, also conducted focus groups. So that's when we get uh, different age groups of people with endometriosis and we take them through and ask them all sorts of different questions. And that is something that's also confirmed in those focus groups. We're still crunching the data on that. But that's one thing from a research point of view um, that it's really important to try and co-design a clinical trial um, with actual people that have your disease. Uh, you know that have the disease that you're actually trying to focus on it's 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 one thing to be an academic or a researcher and think you know a lot about it but if you're not including the population of the people that suffer from it you're, you're going to miss things and so the reason that i've chosen a mixed method uh phd where i'm using again qualitative data such that we're finding from those focus groups directly engaging and asking the participants that have endo all sorts of different questions to help us design a really robust um, clinical trial. And then we've done the quantitative. So all of those online surveys and the archival uh, retrospective data analysis, and all of that data is helping to inform us for what we're moving into now. So uh, essentially the first three stages of my PhD mixed methods are complete. And now we're moving into the clinical trial protocol. So I literally had a meeting with um, two of my amazing supervisors um, this morning, which Dr. Mike Armour and Professor Jason Abbott. Um, and, uh, you know, absolute legends in their field, and they're the ones that are mentoring and, and guiding me through um, the PhD process. So we are moving into that clinical trial phase now, uh, designing the protocol, and hopefully all going well, um, looking forward to uh, recruiting uh, mid-next year, mid-2022. All right. I got, I, that, thank you, Justin, because that was <laughs> a very comprehensive um, description of, of all the work that you've been doing um, in the lab, um, and I guess some of the work outside, but I, I'm, if I can summarize, so basically you have collated, um, through countless hours of surveys, um, you know, lots of data around people's experience, both with the disease, um, treating the disease with a range of different cannabis products such that you're now in a position to inform to sort of be informed sufficiently to be able to design a clinical trial where you know exactly based on that qualitative data this is the type of product that we should be um trialing um so I, I, let me stop there so what product do you think is it are you going to and maybe this is all sensitive so please feel free to uh, brush this one through but is it going Maybe to be a flower type of product? <laughs> is it is it going to be a flower that's that's vaped? Is it going to be an oil? Like how what what from that data? What do you think is the um, perhaps the most effective, or is it a mixed? Um, yeah. Anyway, I'll over to you. It's a very good question, and so what we're doing literally at this point is synthesis. So we're synthesizing all of that data and going through it and deciding 
what what we're what steps we're going to take. So currently, we still have to finish our survey, um, uh, international survey data, and finish the focus groups. Um, so I'm hoping to actually have a definitive answer for you probably by about January. Um, okay, next, cool. Yeah, next year. Um, so, but the the reality is is that yeah, your summary was excellent. I mean, that was exactly what we're doing. So much data as we can um, to actually design a robust study that's actually going to get some hopefully some meaningful data um, and I think you know just as an aside that's that's just what I've done with research I've had you know there's so many people that have reached out to me that are patients with endometriosis either through emails or phone calls or you know through social media or at conferences and sharing their stories and you know, just just for those people, I really want to say thank you, because mm. it's those stories that you know. And I must admit, during the focus groups, um, there were times when I was welling up, you know, and I'd turn my camera off or I'd I'd look away, like it looks like I'm getting a drink, but I was welling up. The stories of the pain and and the, you know, the just the struggle that mm. these people have, um, it 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 gives me even more motivation. Um, it's you know, suffering. It, it, Really yeah, oh, they really are. And, uh, and are you able to, uh, without, you know, is there anything that stands out, like any particular anecdotes, um, obviously confidentiality um, there, but just, is it, just, just for a flavor, what kind of, what's the extent of despair that these people live with? I'm just curious. Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and it, you know, it, it can be a full spectrum. So obviously the more severe the disease, um, it can be quite significant. So whether that's uh, only being able to work part-time, having to have, you know, literally having to work from home, um, not being, um, you know, just not being able to engage in society or with, or with friends and things like they would like to. Um, but some of the encouraging things that came out of uh, some of our focus group research at the same time was that they actually saw cannabis as kind of being a glimmer of hope because many of them had, gone through so many different, um, you know, treatments or surgeries and things like that, and didn't have the, um, the outcomes that they wanted. And, and cannabis for them um, does offer a significant improvement in those symptoms. But I think um, the despair when we start talking about their suffering, there's also despair when it comes to the stigma of cannabis that, that many of them still face, whether that's, uh, you know, from a cultural or religious um, background or whether that's uh, with their job or their workplace, there's the drug driving issue is a still a very significant problem. Um, and that's one thing that, you know, all of our focus groups um, have commented on just saying that how is this possible that this is now a legal medicine and that I could actually lose my license or face charges and things like that, even if I'm not impaired. So I know that um, uh, particularly in the endometriosis co cohort, that is causing a lot of despair. Um, because they, they, in a way, they feel victimized for what is now a legal medicine. And that uh, in their own words, they say, I can drive, you know, off my chops on opioids, but that's not something that's tested for at a roadside drug test. And so yeah. all of, you know, the majority of them are obviously wanting to do the right thing. Um, but yeah, the, the levels of despair for, for participants with endometriosis in some of the focus groups I've studied is really significant. Well, the, that point just at the end there about dry, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me that we are in a situation where there's that much anecdotal evidence at the very least, there is actually now a growing body of research papers that, you know, supports medical cannabis use. 
But I find it incredibly arrogant that the you know so-called established medical profession should turn their nose up at at medical cannabis. I mean, you know, to to sort of comprehend that level of arrogance from a doctor who has a patient with endometriosis that comes to them and says, "Okay, you know, I'm going to shoot you straight, doc. I've been getting you know cannabis, and it's actually giving me an enormous amount of relief." When I get you know it, just that intense pain that that comes around every few weeks or even few days uh, i will smoke a joint and the thc in that gives me relief and then the doctor says actually i know what's best for you you know it's not medical cannabis I, i'm just going to put you on some heavy duty opioids that are highly addictive that could cause you respiratory issues that you know really do actually if taken at a high enough dosage and frequency can impair your driving but you know but oh no medical cannabis you know is is the problem here i mean are you still baffled by that kind of prevailing view that you see from certain sections of you know pain medicine and other disciplines that that really should know better and should be listening more anecdotally to what patients have to say it's really interesting, isn't it? And I, and I think one thing we need to think about when, when, is, when we talk about evidence-based medicine, obviously the data, you know, the evidence from clinical trials and things like that goes to inform all of medicine. Mm. But one thing that's not talked about much is that there are three pillars in evidence-based medicine. So there is that, that we just talked about, the clinical trials, the evidence, the, the, the hard data. But then there's the clinical experience of the doctor. Hmm. When, when is that ever discussed? Okay, so when you get someone like some of these doctors that are prescribing cannabis regularly and frequently um, for some of their patients, that is, that is that, you know, you call it anecdotal, but the fact is, is that is clinician experience. That is the second pillar. And patient preference, the patient experience is the third. So to sit there and say that evidence-based medicine is being practiced the way it was designed is not true. Mm. And, and we do need to start thinking and giving more weight to the experience of clinicians in this space and to the preferences and experience of the patient. And yes, we need the data. That's, that's absolute. You know, I am a researcher. I know we need the data. But um, the reality being is that we're only talking about one and not three. And that's if you're going to talk about evidence-based medicine, then, then please you know, encompass mm. the three pillars of it. And, Absolutely. And, and, and like, the, like the entire mantle of the, the Australian Register of Therapeutic Goods really sort of rests on that one pillar, randomized controlled clinical trials, must have phase three data, must show, you know, and, and we're talking about, you know, and certainly in the case of CBD and, and, you know, most of the cannabinoids, you know, phytocannabinoids that are non-psychoactive, aka anything not THC. I mean, the safety is, is a profile of, of these compounds is, I mean, is anyone seriously putting it in the same camp? I, it, one of the things that still baffles Mitch and I to this day is the fact that you have a range of, you know, really the government has said 98% or if a product contains 98% or more CBD, we'll consider it scheduled for everything else is schedule eight, putting CBG, CBN, CBC in the same campers opioids i mean it's just completely ludicrous but yeah to your point if the artg were to be modeled more around clinician experience patient preference 
than just strictly did that product get put through multi-million dollar RCTs? Like we, we might actually have something that's a little bit more accessible. Um, but, you know, at the moment, yeah, it's, it's, it's just entirely based in this, yeah, in this system that seems to support, um, you know, companies that have very deep pockets. Um, and, you know, and I'm not even convinced necessarily about, you know, that there's, there are great incentives to warp um, even RCT data. So, you know, we have to uh, think about that as a possibility too, when you, you know, heavily stack a system that, that's so weighted in that one pillar, um, what does that incentivize the actors in that space to do? So anyway. Um, well, yeah. it's, a, it's a really good point you raised, but I think the other thing that we can think about is, is supporting the other pillars. And, and one of the best ways that we can do that is for clinician adoption. And I think going to your point, you know, what you were talking about previously about how that doctor might see the patient, the patient might say, I'm getting great results on cannabis, but the doctor doesn't feel comfortable prescribing. And, mm. and the reality may simply be that because they're not educated about cannabis or the endocannabinoid system, they actually will just revert to what they know because mm. they don't want to come across perhaps as being uneducated on the topic in front of their patient. Um, yes. And so really, I mean, all things, all things go back to education. Um, you know, the, I think that will change a lot of that uh, discussion. And you're right, you know, there are certain aspects in, in the medical community and even in the scientific community that are pushing back pretty hard against cannabis. But um, yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that the, the horse has bolted um, and that, uh, yeah, it, it's just going to continue to grow simply by, well, that's what the statistics are showing us pretty clearly, isn't it, um, with yeah. the uh, TGA? Yeah, and there's, there are, you know, I think a, a diminishing number of doctors who are still willing to die in a ditch over this and to really, you know, just, you know, any platform that will give them a voice, they'll still continue to shout down medical cannabis. But yeah, you're right, with that growing number of approvals from the TGA each month, the increase in doctor education is really a tenuous position that these doctors should find themselves in. And to be completely honest with you, I, I hope that um, many of them, you know, really just come around to see the error in their ways um, as, you know, as this whole movement gains momentum, um, because they're also about to get a real shock when, uh, you know, we start opening um, clinics up to psilocybin and MDMA um, you know, it's, it's that sort of ideological shift that people need to do to sort of say, well, okay, this might've been illicit because that was a decision of the government back in the sixties, but, you know, ultimately we're interested in unlocking the therapeutic value of, of certain plant and, and other compounds that, that were previously illicit. So, you know, kind of get on board or, or shut up. You know? yeah. yeah. And I mean, God, psychedelics are another complete topic that I'm completely fascinated in, but we might have to leave that for another time. But yeah. 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 The reality we'll bring you back on for that one though yeah we'll, we'll bring you back on for that one maybe we can you know talk i don't know mycocannabinoids we'll do a, <laughs> a, a, i'll have to do some reading up for you <laughs> yeah. But yeah no I, I think that cannabis definitely has paved the way um for the i think it's pretty pretty fair to say a, a fast movement for a lot of that psychedelic uh research being pushed through in, in Australia, which is a pretty conservative country. So I think a lot of the medicinal cannabis advocates that have been out there working hard for the many, many years have got a lot to be, um, that they contributed a great deal to that as well. Yeah, well, Absolutely. we call it the gateway drug. 
<laughs> Very good, Mitch. Uh, the gateway therapeutic, you mean? But yes, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, no, that's absolutely a, like the the trailblazers. Um, I know Lucy and many others that that you would have been involved with in the um, United in Compassion. Yeah, there there was that much work done, and I even remember um, here in Victoria, Dan Andrews, when. He made the announcement that Victoria was was legalizing as there's the first state to do so. It was really every, you know, sort of photo that I could see was always, you know, the premier standing with um, a family who had a child with epilepsy. So they sort of, they started with the most serious conditions for which medical cannabis can be used to, to treat it. But then it's, you know, really kind of progressed to, to people now feeling comfortable about you know, going and seeing their doctor to just say, hey, I'm actually having a bit of trouble sleeping and I, I don't want to be zonked off, you know, uh, Tamazepam or, or, you know, Seroquel or something. Can you, can you perhaps, you know, provide access to, um, to CBD? Um, so it's, it has been an enormous um, shift and, and so much momentum in the last few years. And yeah, we still to this day, Mitch and I think about all that work that was done long before old med, long before uh, any of this. So, um, and you were part of that too, Justin. So we, we, you know, very grateful. Oh, look, I played a very small part. I got to walk or I, I got to spend time with some very amazing people and that's, you know, from, from all walks of life, you know, I had the pleasure and, and great privilege of, of meeting Dan um, Haslam, uh, obviously spending a great deal of time with, with Lucy and, and meeting, scientists, researchers from around the world doing, doing work in this and advocates from, from every region, mm. you know, and it's, it's, it's certainly not, not one person. Everyone has contributed to this and everyone plays their part. I mean, even having a, a conversation around a dinner table and, and, and talking about this with people that are maybe closed minded to it and changing their mind, that is advocacy, you know, and that is, um, that's how I think this discussion happened because it got in the news and people started talking about it around a dinner table. And, and what did we get? Something like 96% of the Australian population supported medicinal cannabis. And yeah. I think it really boils down to the fact that, you know, no one should be suffering needlessly if they can, if they, if there's something that could, could provide an alternative. And, you know, as we, as you guys probably have said a million times, and most people have, as you know, it won't work for everyone, but for those that it does, it's, it's so significant that it's, it's just wonderful for me to be able to see cannabis, you know, the green queen, as I call her, um, be rightfully reinstated to her, uh, her rightful throne after so many years. And the truth comes out as it always does. And um, it's, it's fantastic that, you know, it's, it's happening around the world. It's just the, science. Um, yeah, I've got, I, before we let you go, Justin, I do have a, I guess, a question looking at the, the New Zealand referendum and you just referenced, you know, we are a, bit of a conservative country um i know victoria sometimes gets the label of progressive but you know we've recently had some people um, roll up to our parliament with gallows so I, I don't know whether we can claim that anymore um but i just wanted to ask if we were to have a referendum at the federal election you know next year what <laughs> what do you think the outcome of that would be where, where are we at in the journey? Do you think we'd, it'd fail, but maybe by not as, would it, would it fail by the sort of the 2% margin that was the case in New Zealand or would it fail by a lot more or would we actually get there? What, what do you think? I wish I could have a crystal ball. Um, I think it'd be really close. Um, mm. that, that would be my, uh, cause I think obviously we've had a medicinal cannabis 
program in Australia now for a number of years that's been quite effective and rolling out significant numbers, getting a lot of media. Um, whereas I don't know if we can say the same for New Zealand. So maybe that would be one of the, the factors that might actually, because people are just realize, well, it's medicinal. Yes, we can tax it, you know, maybe the government when they realize, you know, how much tax they could make off it, that might change minds. But from a mm. referendum point of view, I think it'd be very close. Um, that's a really, yeah, a really good insight. Cause I, I imagine that, I mean, everyone that I talk to about, you know, this podcast that I do, I mean, first thing they do is roll their eyes. But once we get past the eye roll stage, <laughs> they're always telling me about, you know, oh, that's really fascinating. You know, my, my auntie's actually taking CBD oil for this or, you know, my brother takes it for that. It's, yeah, I, I, I feel like in the lead up to a referendum, we'd have so many people actually connecting um, just from their own personal networks with friends and family that are already taking medical cannabis, but whether that would be enough, even if they were, you know, I guess, um, favorably disposed to cannabis for medical use, would that then translate to, oh, well, let's open the, the, the floodgates and, you know, legalize it um, for recreational use? Mm, no, it's such a good question. But I, but I think, I think it is fair to say that people feel far more comfortable talking about cannabis now. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and that that in and of itself, the increased communication, um, not feeling like you've got a whisper and that yeah. you, can, you can actually have, you know, the UIC symposium next year. Hope to see you guys up there, by the by. Yeah, be, yeah. Uh, bells know, and whistles. <laughs> you know, you, you, you've got your general public that can be there, doctors, nurses, other healthcare practitioners. And I think coming together. I mean, imagine imagine 15 years ago talking about a, a symposium about medicinal cannabis. Unheard and, of. And here we are. So, yeah. I think it's changing the, the social views as well. Like it, it, I know if I'm at the, the park or the beach and you're sitting around and you kind of get smoke that, a giant. No, no, you get that oh, smoke okay. and like, oh, somebody, you know, and it's just like, oh yeah. Like, I, I don't know, at least in my age group, but it feels very much like that at the moment. Uh, I know maybe 10 years ago, it would have been a bit like, oh, like, you know, maybe they shouldn't, or, you know, the yeah, they could get into trouble for that. I feel like there's been a relaxed kind of view, especially with North America going kind of there's also more people it. drinking in public i don't know if that's a thing where in which part of australia you live justin <laughs> but i've seen more people just brazenly walking around the streets with beer stubbies and i gotta say i don't mind it at all in new south wales that's for sure but it's um yeah no it's um i mean even what, what what some of the statistics that we've seen coming out of the united states are really interesting when you look at um you know kids you know young young generations are now even moving a little bit away from cannabis because their parents are doing it. It's not cool anymore. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, yeah. it, it is, it, it is one of those things that I think, um, you know, prohibitionist agendas, propaganda, misinformation, hmm. lies, whatever you want to call it, paint it with whatever brush you wish, but that is exactly one of the main contributing factors that got us into this. And, and as we said, you know, the truth is coming out, um, a lot of people have had experience with with cannabis, some of it not great, you know, obviously some people can still have problems with it. But um, when we compare that just to alcohol, mm. how many hospitalizations occurred due to alcohol? When was the last time that you saw a soccer mob, um, you know, start beating each other up when 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 they were on cannabis? Yeah, um, you know, probably you'd be you'd be in fear if you were a local kebab shop that you'd run out of food. I think that'd be the biggest problem. Um, 
but yeah, I, I, I just, I think that that it is very important to think that the generations and the different mm. views would play a significant role uh, when it comes to some type of referendum outcome. We Does might he, actually get to a point where MDMA and psilocybin are no longer cool either, um, depending on how all that <laughs> sort of legalization goes. I never thought I'd say that, but um, Mitch, you were going to say something. I just think it's interesting the way you um, you flipped it this week, Andrew. Normally we ask how many years until you see it recreational, which um, you know ends up being you know maybe three, five, ten, blah blah blah. But adding the referendum element, I, see, I think it's we're still maybe five to ten years away from legalizing THC at least, maybe not CBD. But but when you say referendum, I I actually think if we had a referendum next year, we might it we might tip the scale over fifty percent. I think it's not unreasonable to to think that that would occur at this well i'm starting to think you know that that people say you have to time referendums i know the whole republic movement in australia was you know it's now and this is the time i say just pepper them every single federal election we have a referendum Referendum every year (laughs) every year we just pepper the public until they give in um i reckon that's the way i think it works quite like that um (laughs) No, it is interesting. I, I do think the referendum thing is, is a good little um, a little twist on it, Andrew. So that's, uh, I like Thanks. that. Thank you. Um, well, well, we'll wrap it up there, Justin. I'm sure we'll, we'd love to have you back on, um, you know, at some point to, to discuss how the trials are going and, and to really sort of map your progress with that. We think such big fans of, of that work that you're doing and we really cannot thank you enough for taking the time to, to talk us yeah. through. Um, all, all that you're, you're doing in that space and, and your journey into cannabis um, to date. So I guess until the next time we check in, um, which I don't know if that'll be before the UIC symposium next year, but I'm sure we'll, um, we'll have a, a beer, perhaps a Sierra Nevada when we're up there with you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, and, I'm not a big drinker, so it'll be a couple for me. But I'm Just very a couple, much, okay. I'm, That's I'm all right. Very, I'm, I'm very much uh, looking forward to meeting you both in person and, and uh yeah, hopefully, you know, COVID um, stays a little bit tame as it is now and, and, and we're still allowed to have it face to face because I think that's, uh, it's always great to connect at these types of events and, and hear the stories because that's what I'm all about. I mean, that's yeah. uh, the uh, story uh, of patience is just amazing. Absolutely. We'll be, uh, yeah, we'll be there. So looking forward to that. But um, yeah, until the next time, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, gentlemen, for the opportunity. Cheers, Justin. Cheers. It was great, Justin. Justin.